Hi, as Rach said, my name's Megan. For those of you that don't know me, welcome. I'll be reading from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, so please follow along in your Bibles, on your devices, or I think it'll be up on the screen behind me as well. John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Well, good morning. Um, I'm back from holidays with a kick in my step, and uh, it is great to be with you this morning. If you're new at church or new watching online, it is great to have you. Um, I hope you keep your Bibles open. I'm going to bounce around a little bit in this complex but wonderful passage in a hope to make it simpler, but you can be the judge of that. Um, and uh, I'm going to open up a time for Q&A at the end, because I'm pretty sure this passage will open up a few questions. But uh, look, before I get started too much, uh, I wonder if you've noticed something inconspicuous that I've added to the stage. Any guesses? The plant. That's not just a plant. Anyone know what it's called? A vine, no. A monstera. Yeah, I only know it as the Swiss cheese plant, because I had to Google what the name is. That's how green my thumbs are. But... Um, this plant started quite small, and uh, it is not small anymore. It sits in the corner of our lounge room, and people who sit in the lounge next to it sort of have to sort of, you know, fight it off. But it's a, it's a flourishing plant. That's one way I would describe it. A flourishing plant. Uh, it is healthy. It is growing. It's attractive. Who doesn't want to be flourishing, right? I see a few smiles there. Um, the human flourishing is kind of as old as humanity itself, I think. Uh, now, it's a little bit early for Greek philosophy, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, Aristotle gave it a name. He called it eudaimonia. That's the Greek word for human flourishing. It's not just a pop psychology modern thing. 
the pursuit of happiness and well-being and all that. It is a human thing. Uh, but the reason why I raise eudaimonia, this kind of strange Greek word, is that I want to make a simple, simple claim here. That is that the idea of human flourishing, particularly this Greek word, eudaimonia, uh, was in play well before Jesus' time. But when Jesus speaks of the good life, He does not use that word. And I think that's important. You know the word He does use? Fruitful. There is a quite a big difference, I think. Uh, and I think it's important for us who are soaked in a world that loves eudaimonia, who loves human flourishing, who loves well-being, to know the difference, that we might find what it is to be fruitful and to find that life grafted in Jesus Christ. Because in this last uh, I am passage from John's Gospel, we come to Jesus' statement, I am the true vine. And in verse 5, he repeats that, you are the branches, he says. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Now, I wonder when uh, Megan was reading that passage, you might be familiar with kind of that statement. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's a great statement. There's much to aspire to in much of this passage, but there's also parts of the passage where you go, whoa, <laughs> I didn't see that coming, or I'd forgot that was in there. Uh, and so this passage is going to do two things, I think. One, I want you to see the promise and the power and the comfort that is an offer in this passage. But I want to acknowledge there's some, also some confronting parts of it as well, and I want to help you see all these things together. I do want to make one more statement before we really start, and that is, as we draw these things together and look at this, like what's important to this passage, it is a clear statement that all Christians will bear fruit. To put it another way, there is no such thing as an unfruitful Christian. That's the claim of this passage. Now, that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and so we're going to have to sort of wrestle with that a little bit. But as we make statements like that, as we look at kind of where this passage drives about bearing fruit or otherwise being cut off, as much as that might make us feel uncomfortable, it would be a mistake to start with fruit. We need to start with Jesus. Here's how I'm going to break the passage down. In Jesus the true vine, remain and bear fruit. And the reason why I'm breaking it down like that and not just walking through verse by verse is firstly, uh, as it's classic to John's Gospel, uh, there's lots of kind of swings and roundabouts and kind of back and forths uh, and, you know, we could do that, it would be a good thing. But today we're focusing on this statement of Jesus, I am the true vine and to unpack that, I'm going to follow what I see in the passage as Jesus' name being referred to 36 times, remaining being mentioned 11 times and being fruitful only 8 and fruitfulness only makes sense when you see what it is to focus on Jesus and to remain in Him and then be fruitful. To start with fruitfulness would actually, I think, uh, misunderstand the gospel even, but we'll come to that. So, keep your Bibles open, uh, keep the questions kind of brewing in your mind, uh, because my plan is that we will have time for Q&A, and let's get started. Jesus, the true vine. So this is the final I am statement, we've heard Jesus as the gate, Jesus as the shepherd, Jesus as the resurrection, uh, the way and the truth and the life we've sort of tried to infuse throughout this, uh, Jesus is the bread, uh, Jesus is the light, and now Jesus is the vine, and all of these I am statements, if you can remember sort of how we started the series with Sherwin, it is drawing upon the great I am, that is how God revealed Himself throughout Scripture, even to Moses, He is I am. There is nothing before God. He is all. He is the great I am. And Jesus takes that on Himself to say, I am 
all these different things. The gate, the shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life, the bread, the light, and now the vine. Why would you describe yourself as a vine? Has anyone got a vine in the backyard? I visited uh, Jack, uh, Jack's uh, Iskanderian's house this week, and uh, in, in the back of his garden is a wonderful vine. Uh, in fact, multiple vines. And it looks beautiful right now. Uh, but I reckon in about a month's time, it's going to look pretty ugly. Uh, vines have this way of kind of just dropping everything, and you sort of see the gnarly branches underneath. I don't want to be described like that. You know, kind of seasonal, like really beautiful one moment, and then the next moment, mm, not so much. Why does Jesus describe himself as a weird, dan- tendrily, bitsy, gnarly, kind of sometimes beautiful vine? Well, he's not getting into those kinds of details. He is making a statement about us and our incorporation, that we are the branches. He's describing himself as our life source, our strength that feeds us, that supports us and produces fruit in us. But he doesn't just say, I am a vine. He doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. And I think that actually forced us to go back and look at how God has used this language of the vine. And actually, what he's saying is that Israel was meant to be the vine, but they were not. And he's saying that I am the true vine, I am what they were not. I am here to offer you what they could not. Back in Isaiah 5, uh, that's getting a bit small to read, but give it a go. Um, I've just taken a few verses out from Isaiah 5 where God says this, What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Uh, Hear the kind of, the, the kind of the, the disappointment, the frustration of the kind of uh, the, the vineyard owner, God. Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? And in God's frustration, He says, I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. For the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, the plant He delighted in. He expected justice, a fruit of the vine but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, a fruit of the vine, but heard cries of despair. Israel was meant to be a flourishing plant, a vine that would go on to bless the whole world, but instead it bore worthless grapes. Israel is so often a picture of humanity under its own strength, fruitless and under judgment. But even when there's judgment under God, there is always hope, is there not? Because God is the God of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Even when there is judgment and death, there is still hope because God is amazing. And so Isaiah 27 says this, In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit. Here is a picture of the vine restored. And this is pointing to Jesus, the true vine, the one Israel was not and, one, and, and the one they were looking for. He will fill the whole world with fruit. And when we look at John 15, how do we see Jesus doing that? Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. He is the revealer of God's love. Verse 11, he speaks about, I have told you these things so that you may have joy and that it may be complete in you. Jesus is the one who gives you joy in a way that nothing else, no one else has been able to do. Verse 14, he talks about, you are my friends. Jesus opens up friendship with God. Jesus is the true vine. 
Now, in human flourishing terms, Jesus was still a great guy. He drew great crowds. He was very popular. He was seen to be someone of power. Uh, He was a great teacher. But again, human flourishing is not sufficient to describe what Jesus means when he says that he is the true vine, because he was deserted and mocked and killed. Hardly flourishing, right? But a better word as the true vine is that he showed us the fruits of God and his kingdom. He showed us love, compassion, a desire and power to serve a transformation of lives around him. He shone light into the darkness. He stood up for truth, for righteousness. And in that wretched cross, he gave, us the, he gave the power to forgive so that we might find new life. But as we look at this weak one, the one who was crucified, and see perhaps not the flourishing version that we might aspire to in ourselves, the key to unlock all of this is the resurrection. The claim that God puts upon Jesus to say, He is the one, and death cannot hold Him down. Jesus is the true vine. He is the only one that we will find life in. He is the only one that we will find forgiveness in. He is the only one we will find God in. But as I said, Jesus is mentioned 36 times, uh, remain mentioned, what did I say, uh, 11 times. And so, let's, let's move on to kind of the exciting part of the passage. Oh, sorry, Jesus is very exciting. But remain, remain. It's such an uninteresting word. <laughs> remain. Who has ever received an, a sort of an end of year award for remaining? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> There's no Olympic sport for Remaining. Remaining is what a pot plant does, is when you put it on a windowsill. It just sits there until you move it, and then it remains there as well. (laughs) But of course, remain takes on a, a rich definition. When we see what it is that we remain in, and also when we understand the contours of our own heart and the shifting sands of the culture that we sit in. Older translations use the wonderful but rarely used word now, abide. I don't know why I find myself attracted to that word, it's, I don't use the word, but when I think of abide, I mean, it's the only, the only context I've heard that in is kind of the song, abide in, abide in, abide in me, yes, um, thank you, uh, obviously I know it well, uh, <laughs> but, but, but this sense of kind of actually being rooted in, it, it's not just kind of like sit and plonk, it's actually being grafted in, a, a, and the gospel as we know it, it, it is, is all about grace, that it's because of Jesus' grace to us that we, who, who were otherwise nothing, are grafted into the true vine. So for all that we love to see about Jesus, how He unlocks the Father's love and how He reveals forgiveness and new life, we are grafted into that by grace. We abide in Him. And if I could just use kind of one of the stranger verses, perhaps, uh, if, if, please keep your Scriptures open. Uh, in, verse, in verse 3, just after Jesus has talked about kind of, He's the true vine, uh, where to produce fruit, He then kind of switches metaphors slightly and says, you are already clean because of the Word I've spoken to you. So what is it, Jesus? Is it, or is it remaining? Is it kind of branches? Is it fruit? Or is it clean? What's clean got to do with that? Uh, we lose kind of what's happening there, in, in, uh, and I don't want to keep going back to the Greek, but in the Greek there's a word play. So branch is klama, prune is katharo, clean is katharos. 
And clean is actually, when we kind of see that language of clean, we go back straight to kind of John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. But it wasn't just about foot washing. He says, if you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me because you are already clean. So Jesus has washed them thoroughly already because he is gracious and he's reminding them now, even as he speaks about bearing fruit, and if you don't bear fruit, I'm going to cut you out of the vine, just in case they're kind of freaking out a little bit by that, he says, but you are already clean. He's making the same statement, you are grafted in by grace. And what makes this abiding, this remaining interesting is when we kind of dig into our heart a little bit more, because we don't like to remain. We like to do things in our own strength. And so let me ask a couple of questions of this verb, this imperative, remain. Firstly, how? How are we to remain? Because at one level, it just sounds like we just plonk in and just, that's it, right? How are we to remain? Well, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. So just as as Jesus has remained in the Father's love, demonstrated in His obedience to the Father, He's saying to us to remain in Him as we obey. If you keep my commands, that's obedience. How do you remain? You obey. Obedience is our expression of faith in which God nourishes us. We listen to God, we receive His Word and we act upon it and are therefore blessed. That's actually kind of a neat little summary of Deuteronomy which we're going to start in a couple of weeks. We listen to God, we receive His Word and we act upon it and are blessed. We are fruitful because we obey. But of course, it scares us a little bit, doesn't it? Because if I make that connection clear, which Jesus makes clear, I think, we go, well, I'm actually not that obedient. I can see areas where I'm disobedient. And also, what about grace? Can we go back to grace? Aren't we grafted in by grace? What are you telling me now I've got all this work now that I'm grafted in? Well, uh, To answer that, I'm going to draw upon Andrew Murray, who's a 19th century South African pastor. He sums it up better than I could, Um, but it's a bit of old English and uh, it's also just a couple of paragraphs, so just bear with me, but I think it's worthwhile. This is Andrew Murray. Christ Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. In other words, I, the living one, who have so completely given myself to you, am the vine. You cannot trust me too much. I am the mighty worker, full of a divine life and power. You are the branches of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is in your heart the consciousness that you are not a strong, healthy, fruit-bearing branch, not closely linked with Jesus, not living in Him as you should be, perhaps you might feel in the sting of that, then listen to Him say, I am the vine, I will receive you, I will draw you to myself, I will bless you, I will strengthen you, I will fill you with my spirit. I, the vine, have taken you to be my branches. I have given myself utterly to you. Children, give yourself utterly to me. I have surrendered myself as God absolutely to you. I became man and died for you, that I might be entirely yours. 
come and surrender yourself entirely to be mine. I find this a wonderful kind of uh, passage as we think about what Jesus has done for us and his constant, his constant invitation to surrender to him. And as we don't, and as we hold back, and as we disobey, rather than feel guilty, we come back to him in faith and repentance and say, help me. I will take up your invitation again. I will surrender because you have surrendered yourself to me. He uses the word surrender rather than obedience here, but it's kind of, there's a lot of things overlapping at this point. Remaining, obedience, surrender. And I think actually Peter sums all this up well in John 6, just a couple of chapters ago, when he says, where else do we have to go for you alone have words of eternal life? And when you put it like that, what else, who else will we obey? Who else will give us words of life than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? Yes, obedience will be hard at times, but who else has words of eternal life? Do you see how remaining is far more interesting when you're in the vine, when you understand the contours of your own heart? But I want to ask another question again of this imperative to remain. Uh, and it, sort of, it comes from the passage from chapter 15. And here's the question, what is our experience of remaining? What is our experience of remaining? Verse 2, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. This is a much richer vision for life than just human flourishing, because it includes this pruning. Who knows how to prune a rose? Anyone? Any green thumbs here? Nobody? How do you prune a rose? Okay, so you've got to cut it back. Yep. And usually after you prune a rose, it doesn't look anywhere near as pretty as before. Is that... Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and I, we had some roses at Newtown that were kind of really special roses. They were kind of um, planted in a memorial garden and uh, we, let it, we, we didn't prune it for a while and they looked really sad. And it was interesting kind of to think about when you just let a rose go and kind of it's a beautiful plant, uh, but, but when you let it go, it loses its beauty and we're like, oh no, we're killing these plants, these beautiful roses that are kind of part of this memorial garden. Uh, and so when the gardener came in to tend to it, they pruned it and I was like, oh my goodness! But that's what you need to do. You need to prune a plant so that it will actually produce more fruit, more flowers. Who here wants to be pruned? Hmm. We've got to trust the gardener, don't we? We've got to trust the gardener. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. What does being pruned look like? I first preached this passage... in the middle of lockdown. Uh, and there I was kind of staring at a stupid camera uh, with no one in the room and going, there's so many more fruitful things I could be doing. <laughs> Sometimes being pruned uh, sort of comes by circumstance, that these kind of like, uh, that these blockers are in play, that we're not able to do what we would like to do perhaps. Sometimes it means cutting out behaviour and thinking. For Jesus, as inclusive and gracious as He is, also calls us to repentance. Sometimes we feel like God is holding back on us. 
But pruning is not a punishment, it is a privilege as branches in the vine. Because God is causing a greater fruitful, fruitfulness in us, that I'll come to explain a bit more in a second, but we have to trust the gardener. I wonder if you feel like you're in a season of springtime, where kind of the buds are kind of, you know, and you can see the abundance of fruit in your life and you're thankful to God for that. I wonder if maybe you are kind of, you know, like we are in autumn now, where you feel like your leaves are kind of starting to fall off. I wonder if you're starting to feel wintry, kind of really cut back and a bit stale. Maybe you're in a season of pruning. Maybe your very acknowledgement of that is part of actually acknowledging the gardener's work in you. But the gardener is good and he promises us that he will bear his fruit in us. That's if you remain in the vine. If you keep listening to Jesus, if you keep obeying him and following him, There is, of course, an alternative to that, to not listen to Jesus, to not trust Him at all, to to disobey, uh, to be essentially cut off. And we can't sort of escape that in this passage, God, uh, Jesus speaks a number of times to, to being cut off. In a way, this is just the kind of the flip side of when Peter says, where else do we have to go for you alone have words of life? If that is true, then if you go somewhere else and reject those words of life, then you do not have words of life. It's just that Jesus is putting in the negative here. Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now, at one level, this is metaphorical speaking, Uh, but to cut yourself off from the source of life is to stand under His judgment. For your rejection of Him does not mean that God does not exist. You will still stand before Him. But you've rejected the very offer of life and there is no life left in you. We like to think that we're impressive without God. I did some pruning before. Sorry, Kel. Um, And, and for a little while, for, for a little while, the branch looks pretty good. I mean, it's got a few withery bits, but mostly it looks great. And I could put that kind of amongst some other plants and it would make a nice little bunch. And, you know, I'd go, wow, isn't that cool? Isn't that nice? A little bit of flourishing right there. But it's not going to flourish because it's been cut off. It's no longer going to grow. And if I left it here on stage for a day or two, you know what's going to happen. These brown bits are just going to take over. It is going to wilt. And it's good for nothing else. I'll just chuck it in the fire. <laughs> Keep me warm in these wintry nights. We all like to claim some kind of impressiveness in our own strength. But Jesus puts it in a frame where the only way for you to bear fruit that will last, for the only way for you to be fruitful, is to remain in Christ. And anything else is to be cut off. I came across this uh, passage as I was reading another book this week. But I'll quote the original, James Finley uh, is a monk, I believe, who, who kind of made it his sort of speciality to uh, focus on meditation and, uh, and, and spiritual life. And he wrote this, in our zeal to become the landlords of our own being, <laughs> well put, we cling to each achievement as a kind of verification of our self-proclaimed reality. 
Let me read that again. In our zeal to become the landlords of our own being, we cling to each achievement as a kind of verification of our own self-proclaimed reality. That's like this branch saying, kind of, hey, I just produced another kind of green bit. Aren't I awesome? But you're cut off. It's not the reality. We become the center and God somehow recedes to an invisible fringe. Others become real to the extent they become significant others, to the desires of our own ego. And in this process, the all of God dies in us and the sterile nothingness of our desires becomes our God. (laughs) A very poetic framing of what Jesus is speaking of. Brothers and sisters, will you remain in Jesus? Stop looking to your achievements to proclaim your own self-made reality and come to the real reality of there is only life in Jesus. And it is a fruitful life, so don't substitute it for anything else. And so we come to the end of this kind of uh, sort of three-part sermon, that is, remain, sorry, in Jesus Christ, the true vine, remain and bear fruit. You still with me? Excellent. What's fruitfulness? It's interesting kind of how, in many ways, this passage doesn't really give us a long list or even a definition of fruitfulness. Have have I missed it? (laughs) Sometimes I miss the obvious, sometimes. But I think fruitfulness is so expansive in the Gospel, in Jesus Christ, in the Scriptures, that it doesn't belong in kind of like a mere list or, or kind of just even in this passage. We ought to kind of see it in Jesus and long for it, just as I spoke to you at the very beginning. Uh, fruitfulness is nothing short of the manifestation of Jesus' life in you. We could say fruits of the Spirit from Galatians, so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do any of you exhibit any of these in any part? That is God's fruit in you. Jesus speaks about the harvest being plentiful. He's speaking there, of course, of people coming to the kingdom. People who who begin to trust Jesus because of the harvest workers that He sends out. That is fruitfulness. Even faith and repentance are expressions of God's Spirit in us, of us imbibing in Christ. So that every time you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit actually calling you to repentance, that itself is a fruit of God at work in you. And of course, as we put all this together, we we, we see a wonderful picture of of Jesus transforming us from the inside out in whole. That is God's fruitfulness. And all this is fruit that lasts. So in verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove prove to be my disciples. Jesus is glorified by this fruitfulness in your life. And so for whatever kind of other achievements you have, whatever other good things you are aspiring to outside of Jesus, they might be good for a while, but they will not last. They will not glorify the Father as much as as the fruitfulness that we are called to produce as Christians. Do you want this in your life? Do you want to be fruitful as branches in the vine? Now, you can see, I hope, why I didn't start the sermon with now produce much fruit and prove to be Jesus' disciples. Because that just would have 
put pressure on you to kind of like make yourself a fruitful plant. And often when we, when, when, when we fail to produce the fruit that we sh- think we should be producing, we kind of think badly of ourselves, like we're a bad Christian. But instead, when I start with Jesus and we're captivated by Him, the great I Am, and when I say to you, remain in Him and therefore bear fruit, my hope is that you will both see the fruit that God has already produced in your life, that you will want it more, and that you will take up Jesus' invitation to pray and receive. I'm going to finish this as we're sort of bringing it all together in kind of that pretty kind of epic statement in verse 16. Nothing like one more kind of Pandora's box to open up at the end. Uh, But in verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit. Okay, we get it. And that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. Wow, that's a bold statement. Whatever you ask in the Father's name, in Jesus' name to the Father, He will give you. And my hope is that as we look to John 15, as as we look to Jesus, our first prayer would be, would you bear fruit in my life that you would be glorified? That's a natural thing to kind of want to pray. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if Jesus is kind of, you know, this is hours before Jesus is arrested and led to his own crucifixion, right? Could you imagine kind of Jesus getting quite worked up, I would presume, uh, quite passionate as he tries to instill the, 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 the truths of the gospel in the lives of his disciples. Imagine if, you know, Peter says, and Peter, I'll just pick on Peter because he's easy to pick on, he's like me. Um, it, Peter says, excuse me, excuse me, can, can I just have like a, a ski lodge in Aspen? He's like, oh, whatever you ask for, I shouldn't have said it like that. You know? Now, Jesus sometimes does give us kind of the, the, these kind of requests that we put to God that are kind of coming from maybe selfishness, because God is merciful and gracious and compassionate, and sometimes He answers it like that. But, but surely the thrust of this passage is that when you ask the Father in Jesus' name, when you put in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayer, You are asking that you are being conformed into the likeness of the one who even enables you to pray to the Father. As I said, Jesus is hours away from from being arrested where He says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. That is a reference to kind of God's wrath. Take this judgment away from me. I don't want to go through the crucifixion. Who does? But nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And so when Jesus gives us this incredible promise, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you, we've got to hold a couple of things in tension. One, the Father's will. But two, Jesus really saying, ask. And we shouldn't sort of take the Father's will as some kind of like just divine plan that we, you know, we might as well not even ask, right? Because God's got a plan and I'll just roll it. I'll just go back to remaining, <laughs> just plonking there, right? But there's a real invitation to ask, it's a reminder that this is, this is supernatural, that this fruit bearing in you is not just a product of some you know, cause and effect, some kind of 12-step plan. This is you asking the Father, the gardener, to do His work in your life because you are grafted in Jesus and you are invited as a branch in that vine to ask. Be bold, friends. The worst thing we can do 
is, is kind of remain in a passive sense. I shouldn't say the worst. It, we, we ought not, the worst thing would be to kind of stop remaining altogether. But friends, we are invited into this privilege. How dare we not take it up? I've got time to share an example of how we might hold intention, uh, kind of our longing to do the Father's will and asking in Jesus' name, but also just asking as dependent children. Uh, a number of years ago, when, when Kel and I were at this church, uh, as I was a student minister, um, we'd been married for a number of years, and I've shared this story before, I'm sure. Um, we'd been married for a number of years, and we decided to have children, uh, in our mind at least, but that began a season of infertility in our life. And it's a perfectly good thing, I believe, to ask God that we'd be blessed with children. But God didn't seem to answer our prayer. And that led kind of a long season of kind of bitterness, of frustration. And sometimes when we feel like God is holding back from us, and when we don't see it perhaps as His pruning in our lives, it leads to kind of a, I might even say like an immaturity of faith, a frustration. And friends, we need brothers and sisters to speak encouragement into our lives at this point. We need to be reminded of passages like this, but nonetheless, infertility is often a, a very silent struggle and we struggled along wondering what God was doing or maybe not doing in our life. It took us kind of hearing from another pastor, uh, you know, just in God's plan. Uh, we were down in Melbourne and we felt, both of us felt strongly that God was calling us to repentance for idolising our desire to have children. That's crazy at one level but I think it's part of God's plan. God was actually holding out, I think, when we know, you know that we have kids now, but before we could have kids, in a way I look back and I see God was actually, actually wanting us to, to find something, a fruitfulness that was beyond kind of what we were asking before He gave us what we were asking. He wanted us to repent, that we might find that His grace is sufficient, that we might depend on Him as our Father, as the good gardener in all seasons, and then we might be willing to even be pruned over season to continue to trust in Him and find His fruitfulness. It's crazy that kind of just after that moment, Kel fell pregnant. And, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't work like that. Sometimes we don't have kind of like that catharsis and all of a sudden we're released into blessing. But I want to share it as an example of how we ask, even for good things, that doesn't mean a simple, okay, here you go, because you asked for in Jesus' name and you'll get whatever you asked. We've got to trust the gardener, that He might do a great work in us for His glory. May we continue to express our remaining in obedience, in surrender, in active and bold prayer. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you are in the true vine. You will bear fruit. You will. And you will already be bearing His fruit because that's the promise. If you trust in Jesus, you're in the vine and you're already bearing His fruit. And if you want more, great. Pray it so. Actively remain. Expectantly watch and celebrate God's work in you and others. For Jesus says, I am the true vine. Friends, this is a wonderful promise and comfort and I want you to see that this morning and I hope you more and more experience the grace and power of living in Him 
and may you, according to His promise, bear much fruit that lasts. Let me pray and then I'll see if people would like to ask some questions or share things that God's put on their heart this morning. Father, You are a wonderful, sovereign and majestic gardener. You prune us, you graft us, you enable us to be in the life of the Lord Jesus and bear His fruit by grace, by Your grace. We trust You in hard seasons where You are pruning us, where You are cutting us back for Your glory. Help us to see that the crucifixion ends in the resurrection. Help us to see and trust Your glory above what we can see with our own eyes at times but also show us and encourage us the fruit you have already borne in our lives, in the fruit you have borne in the lives of those around us, that we might be encouraged, that we might be uh, enlivened to keep remaining actively and joyfully. We ask this for your glory and in the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.